I think we all dream up big dreams and we all seek to pursue them. But when you hit that dream, you will learn things that you didn't expect to learn. Even the dream that you get will be a brutal storyteller of what actually matters. What motivates your dreams is just as important as the dream itself. In fact, maybe even more important. These dreams for your future inform your daily decisions and where you focus your time, energy, and resources. But sometimes achieving your desired dream can bring with it hard truths and convicting realizations. Now, often upon arriving at what you've been striving for, you may not feel like you hoped. So it's important to operationalize your dreams and look under the figurative hood of what you're moving towards so you're clear on what inner influences are driving the future you desire. Now, no matter how smart the parts of you are that strategize and plan, if you're not clear on the echoes of your pains, losses, and unmet needs, then they can become interwoven with your vision for your future. And if you're not aware of these influences, they can drive you in ways that you may not be aware, setting you up for burnout, and not feeling satisfied when your dreams are actually achieved. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Your desires for your future impact how you lead yourself and others today. They inform how you use your time and your resources right now. They feel the drive that motivates you to get up each day as you do the important and sometimes tedious practices that build the future you want for yourself and the world. They support moving from a vision or idea to action, creating the reality you've always longed for. The tricky thing is about desires for the future is they require understanding your past and any pain it holds. Now, I know this does not sound very dreamy. And I hear from many of you that you feel like you've done a lot of work on your story, so there's no need to check back on it again, especially because it feels counterproductive to look back instead of moving forward with the life you're cultivating. But the fact is the echoes of the burdens we all carry influence our desires, whether we're aware of them or not. And maybe these echoes are connected to the longing to be loved as you are, or to be seen, or to feel significant, or to have power. And if you're not aware of these influences, they can drive you in ways you may not be aware, setting you up for burnout and not feeling satisfied when your dreams are actually achieved. Now, my dreams from my teenage and early 20 years centered around access to power. No surprise I was drawn to public relations and politics, right? An early dream was to be completely self-sufficient, not needing anyone, but being able to have a big impact on the issues I cared deeply about. Now, achieving this, quote, success left me wanting. Not a big surprise, right? The hole I was trying to fill was still empty. I didn't realize this drive for power and self-reliance was inextricably connected to growing up in a chaotic home where words and fists were weaponized and feeling safe was rare. 
So maybe you are dreaming of a book deal or that job that would change everything for you. Or maybe you hold a financial dream that will offer security and the ability to be more generous. Maybe your desires for the future are more personal around family or health. My guest today realized she achieved the dream she had been striving for and did not feel how she hoped. This led her on a powerful journey of self-discovery and deconstruction on how she viewed herself, her work, and her relationships. Maria Seal is a Seattle-based author, speaker, multidisciplinary artist, as well as an avid list maker with over 1 million books, journals, and stationary products in print. Her passion lies in helping people of all ages to list their needs, desires, dreams, and goals, and rewrite personal narratives while providing resources for happiness, resilience, and self-expression. Her latest journal, My 52 List Project, guided self-exploratory list making for kids is in retailers worldwide now. Go grab your My 52 List books. I promise you they're worth it. (laughs) Now listen for Maria's insights into arriving at what she had been dreaming for and working towards and still feeling empty. Notice how Maria unpacks the difference between being loved and accepted as she is and being valued for what she does for work and others. And pay attention to what Maria learned about having a store and a brand based on her name and what shifted for her after she started to just be Maria versus living a divided life. Now, please welcome Maria Seal to the Unburdened Leader podcast. I'm so happy to welcome Maria Seal to the Unburdened Leader podcast today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. There's a lot I want to cover today. And so I want to start by going back in time. I want to take us back to March 2020, which <sighs> was a pretty significant moment in our whole world yeah. when the news of sheltering in place mandates broke out and business as usual fundamentally ended <laughs> and it's continuing mm-hmm. to still we're feeling the the ripples of that you were running a fairly large brick and mortar storefront along yep. with an e-commerce e-commerce business on the side that was yep. the culmination of almost a decade of work which you've referred to as a dream i'd love for you to share with us what was going through your head as the situation came into focus it was it was a wild time for me because it wasn't just the pandemic that was suddenly feeling heavy on my shoulders, I was also going through a divorce and a business partnership ending. Two different people. So I two divorces. Two divorces. Two divorces. And turns out that a business divorce is even harder and more painful and more heartbreaking even than a romantic divorce. So yeah, I had just uh, split with my ex-husband of who I'd been with for 10 years. I had just left the relationship right at the end of February. So at the same time, my business partner at the very end of 2019 had told me he wanted out of the business after he had just done a lot of kind of bringing the company back down to brass tacks. So at one point, my company had 14 people on the staff. And at that point, it only had five people. So I was anxious. I was already kind of running at past my limit for a long, long time and recognizing that I needed my company to change in massive ways for my own health, my own well-being. My whole life was changing. So then to have the pandemic hit at that exact time 
was just insanity. It was mind boggling because I was also between homes. I was living in a friend's office in her apartment while I was trying to figure out what, what am I supposed to do next as a freshly single person, a person who'd never lived alone in her life before. Were you at your friend's house when the news broke about sheltering in place and businesses that weren't essential needed to shut down? Nope, even harder. So <laughs> I was living with a friend at the beginning of uh, March, um, or in mostly February, and she had asked if I could move out for a month for the month of, for half of March, half of April, um, so that she could figure out her living situation to see if I could move in there permanently or not. So I moved into an Airbnb. I had heard about the pandemic, that things were happening, people had died in Seattle. I moved into a very expensive Airbnb in downtown Seattle, about 30 stories up. And then shelter in place started. So I was living alone for the first time in my entire life in this like floating bubble above the city while I watched the world shut down and the amenities in the building were not accessible. So it's like I, I was <laughs> paying an exorbitant amount of money to just sit in this little pod in the sky alone. And I'm someone who I had a very isolated childhood, so I'm used to being alone, but it was just much more profound alone than I could have ever imagined mm -hmm. with the piles of the things I was dealing with personally and in my business and feeling the world also isolate. It was a vice grip, a profound alone, 30 stories up in the air. Yeah. And you're in this kind of fancy schmancy space, but you couldn't use the gym or the pool or the spa or whatever it is, all the fun things that they have. Couldn't go on the you roof. <laughs> couldn't go. Oh, you couldn't even go on the roof. No. You shut that down too. Yeah. Yeah. So it really felt like I was kind of trapped in this weird bubble. And I had had this moment. There was this one of the walls was just all windows. And as a little girl, Growing up in rural England in a village of 400 people, I had, and my parents are American, they're from LA, but they are kind of these esoteric, spiritual, mystic people. We lived in a village of 400 in England. My dad was a local priest of an Anglican church. I had this like dream and a vision for myself of someday I will be a fancy lady living in a pied-a-terre with a big floor-to-ceiling window, and I will have my cup of coffee, and I'll look out at the world, and I'll feel accomplished. And it was the most surreal moment to be standing at that actual window. It's like I finally got to that window, and it was terrible. <laughs> it was heartbreaking. It was it's like I, I stood at that window that I'd aspired to get to my whole life, and it was like, and what? We're in a pandemic. I have no love. My business partnership is ending. What is all of this for? It was really, it was a wild, a wild spot to be in amidst the world shutting down. So as we have some space from that 18, 19 months-ish, mm -hmm. what is it, what was it all for? I mean, when you look at where you were then and, and now, what, what's it for? I can, I can see very brutally and clearly for myself that all along I was just searching for acceptance. All along hmm. I was just searching for uh, a way to survive. I, I can look back at different interviews that I did 
for my business. And listening to them now, it, I realized that all of these things that I would say literally, but in a joking way, you know, they got a lot of laughs, but they were still true to me. And people weren't listening to the behind the scenes message, um, or I was kind of blocking it. So there, whenever people would say things like, what inspires you in business? I'd be like, survival. I'm just, I'm just trying to get by. Um, because while I built out a storefront that cost $500,000 and was 4,000 square feet and had a two-story back office, I was still driving my grandma's car and the front door didn't work and I had to climb out the side. So I just was, I just had this, I don't know, survivalist way of being from growing up with parents who also had to survive and scrape things together. I think I was just always searching for like, when will I reach my stability? Mm. And I looked for it outwardly and I looked for validation outwardly. I aspired to be a leader, but I still had yet to, I don't know, to, to really decide how to lead myself first before leading others, how to put on my Oof. safety mask before I put the safety mask on other people. I just had this life of go, go, go and give, give, give and overcommit and be overly responsible, sacrifice. So yeah, when I decided to close my store during the pandemic, seeing <laughs> seeing my name on the window, it's like I it was too much pressure for me. It wasn't actually what I was seeking. I can just see very clearly for myself, all I really wanted was love. All I really wanted was acceptance. All I really wanted was to be seen as I am. And I had to build a lot of things and tear them down to realize that I had to find that for myself. Building up and tearing down at the core, wanting love and wanting belonging. You, you touched on your store having your namesake. Do you share often that it was hard to separate yourself from your store mm -hmm. because of that namesake piece? Yep. So even in light of what you're saying now, how has your sense of self shifted since closing the store? So massively. I think some things that some challenges that I had in having my name on the store, um, it, you'd think that if your name's on the store that you are the boss, but I did not feel like the boss. I felt like the prop. I felt like oh. the puppet. I felt like I am beholden to my business partners to perform. And that is so not me at all. There is, mm. I, I prefer to be honest. I prefer to be blunt. I prefer to be straightforward. And I love to shift and I love to morph. That's how I've always been. I love to be challenged and to discover new elements of myself and reveal them and to inspire that in other people as well. But when you are the name of a brand, you are static and people expect you to be static. Not only followers and fans, but also the people who have invested money in you. So I felt a massive, a constant terror within my business of, okay, I have this platform, but I'm constantly being told to, there's ways I want to use my platform. There's the reason why I started my storefront was not to sell things, but it was because I saw in Seattle that there were beautiful stores, but you are not welcome in them if you do not look a certain way or have a certain amount of money. I was really upset about that. Uh, that is why I opened my storefront. I want to create things that are accessible to people. 
I want beautiful things to be accessible to people. And I also see in society, things have changed in the last like three to five years of beautifully designed things at accessible price points. And wow, now suddenly people are okay with the queer community as of 2020. And while we're finally standing up for people of color, it just, there's still so much performance happening in that. And I have just been hungry to use whatever I have to create actual significant change. But being a brand, you must perform, you must put on a show. So I just always felt this constant battle of, I just want to be honest and blunt and talk about what matters. And I'm supposed to be selling things to sustain this platform. So I have to do the dance and perform the show and all that. That's exhausting. There's yeah. a couple of follow, follow-ups to what you said about, you know, a brand, you talked about feeling like being a brand made you kind of feel forced to be static where you're a very dynamic, creative individual. In fact, we all are. Yeah. But you in particular are very, that that is how it's almost your language is your creativity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that expectation, people then were like, we want you to be, this is, these are my words. We want mm-hmm. you to be who we want you to be mm-hmm. so that we feel good about supporting you. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. being impossible it's, it's, it's impossible to sustain that. And yeah. then I'm thinking about <laughs> the spiciness. Like you drop some serious cash and and some serious labor put into a space like, you know, kind of an F you, like this is going to be a space where everyone is welcome. Yeah. And yet it was hard for you to feel like it was a space for you to be you Yeah. in it. But yeah. Like, whoa, that's just yeah. standing out to me. Even just, it, it started to, I don't know, from, I think we all, dream up big dreams and we all seek to pursue them. But when you hit that dream, you will learn things that you didn't expect to learn. Even the dream that you get will be a brutal storyteller of what actually matters. So, you know, I, as a kid, I wanted to be an artist and a musician and I aspired to like do hair and be friendly. That Those were my... Those are my things. But then I also had this little voice in me that was very driven and hungry to do something big and different because I have people in my family who have done incredible things. My grandma started the first bilingual schools in the LA area when she saw how Vietnamese refugees were not being served well. Um, so I And my great-grandfather was one of the youngest judges in Texas. He was half Cherokee and we're really proud of what he could do and what he taught himself. So, you know, I've been hungry to fulfill this, this lineage while also just wishing for acceptance and love at the same time. (laughs) And so, yeah, reaching, reaching the big dreams that I hit, it made me realize, wait, who cares if one of my books hit number two on all of Amazon? How does that actually (laughs) change me, the person? Not at all. And also, where do I go from there? Oh, no. Where is the next step from number two on all of Amazon? Where's the next step from my books being featured on Oprah's website 14 times? It's like I I kind of I went so hard, achieved so much so fast that when I got there, I was like, does this even matter? How does this change? I, do I actually feel accepted as I am and loved as I am? Or do I feel lauded for what I can do? These are two different things. 
It's such a tension when you have those ambitions to have a big impact, but in our world, it can shift into the hustle for enough and tell me the externalizing mm-hmm. of seeking, seeking someone to say we're enough and we're worthy and we belong, right? Yeah. You touched on family. I want to shift a little bit. And in, in addition to these incredible people that you mentioned in your family, and I'm sure there's more to hear from, <clears> you also have a really painful legacy of loss. Yeah, especially in your family related to suicide, mm-hmm. what you've shared and and written about. I've, I don't think I've met anyone who's had that kind of loss, whether it's with family, with friends, throughout your life. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your relationship with grief, given the chronic losses that you've experienced in your short life? All of these are tied together: love and loss, grief and happiness, achievement and stagnancy. Amen. All of them are tied together. And I think I know it's because of experiencing so much grief and loss from a very young age, having an awareness of death and its impact on generations, having an awareness of trauma and legacy of trauma, along with legacy of grandness. Um, I've just been hyper aware of these things from a young age. I was aware from a very young age of my mom's mental health challenges, which she has had misdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, misdiagnosed until she finally received a correct diagnosis when I was in college. I remember her falling down on top of the stairs and me as a three-year-old trying to help her up and get her to the bathroom alone. Yeah, my mom was suicidal when she was younger. She found out that her grandfather ended his own life via the radio. Also, he was a very successful, driven, talented man, but also had his vices and his trauma and his pain. He was he was a mis- mixed ethnicity man in the early 1900s trying to build a business while also struggling with alcoholism. And then he ended his own life. And then also having a dad who is a priest. <laughs> when I was a little girl in England, I would just go to funerals just because, mm. because there was nothing else to do in my village. I would just go sit at funerals and watch people process and be a part of it and be in it. And also growing up in England, there's, it's, I grew up with a different sense of history than a lot of Americans do. In the US, especially white America, it's like, everything's new. This is our new country. We got it ourselves. And that's not true. In Growing up in a rural village in England, it's like we communed with ghosts. Like there's the ghost in the bell tower. There's the ghost that plays the organ sometimes at night. There's the ghost in that barn. It's just that was uh, holding space for people who have passed yet are still here. There's just a whole different story around grief and loss than in the U.S. where everything is kind of like, "Ah, and this is new and this is new and this is new and old is bad and new is good. Yeah. For sure. Well, so, you touched on this, and, and I believe this too, that love is inextricably connected with grief. Mm-hmm. How has this impacted how you show up with people in your life knowing this deep truth? Yeah, I am I am someone who is brutally honest, and I think people know that they can trust me with their stories. I'm someone who uh, a lot of people open up to, whether they're a close friend or an acquaintance because they can kind of see I've been very open in my life and very vulnerable. I see the strength and the power and vulnerability and I've practiced it my whole life. 
And that is my source of power and a source of power that I hope to instill in other people. So I've practiced vulnerability my whole life, I think because of the environments that I grew up in, the experiences that I had. We learn things because we seek them, and then we learn things because they happen to us. We learn things because they just exist in us. There's so many different forms of learning, and I was learning very quickly lots and lots of things from a young age when it came to awareness of death and loss and life and grief and joy. I'm a very observational person, observant person. I'm introverted, but also have learned to be very social. I like to feel into experiences, to be aware of what's going on around me. That is a strange thing that also kind of ties into a late in life diagnosis of autism. The f- there's little superpowers that I hold while also having major deficiencies and disabilities in other ways. Um, I think, yeah, just the awareness of loss was palpable from a young age. When I first moved to the U.S., a girl that I knew died eight days later. And then the girl who sat next to me in my class drowned in a hot tub. And she used to, uh, there's things that she told me that are still so vivid in my mind that made it feel like a very surreal, spiritual, almost destined situation that is uncomfortable to hold, but I heard it. And then also the next year, my best friend's older sister was hit by a car and died. So I just had this childhood of hyper-awareness of loss. And when you're aware of how short life can be, what are you going to do with your life? That has been my drive. And so when I say what drives you in, when people ask what drives you in your career, and when I say survival, I really mean it in so many ways. Not only I need to survive in a capitalist system, but also I need to emotionally survive in a world that's not set up to support people with mental illness and neurodivergence. I'm also surviving because I want to make the most of out of every second that I have because I don't know how long this is going to be. So I will go and I will do and I will fill my life, whether it's sitting alone and exploring my mind or creating things or commuting with people. I'm hungry for the life that I have because I know it could just end. But there seems to be, to me, a difference between living a life of survival and living a not life with a radical awareness that it could go at any moment. Can, can you, un- so I hear you kind of bouncing yeah. and toggling between mm-hmm. the survival parts of it, but also just this acute awareness and even gratitude and, mm-hmm. and maybe there's a, even a sense of urgency. I don't know. Yeah. To- because I just want to just have you unpack the difference, how you see surviving and an awareness that life can be or potentially be short. Yeah, I think that my brain toggles between the two. It's when it's unhealthy, it's functioning in survival mode of fight or flight, freeze or fawn. Absolutely. But then when it is functioning in a healthy way, it's It's extreme appreciation, extreme gratitude for exactly what I have at every second, no matter if it's a space of abundance or nothingness. I don't really, I've kind of never attached to that word of abundance or seeking to fill abundance because I know for myself, the moments that I felt in my life that have felt most full are really sweet, simple moments, like observing my mom craft this perfect Barbie tent out of straws and plastic bags, and then sewing me clothes for my Barbie. That 
felt like abundance of love and care and creativity and inspiration versus an abundance of having a ton of Barbies. So yeah, I think I think my brain just toggles between the two when it's going into a kind of a survivalist mode. It'll go into fight or flight, hurry, 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 anxiety, depression, spiral. But when it's in a healthy space, it's extreme gratitude, extreme appreciation, and recognizing I don't need to go hard. I get to value every second. So more mindfulness. Yeah. And presence, which is part of mindfulness too. Absolutely. That's powerful. Thank you for deconstructing and unpacking that a little bit more. And you've talked about mental health here and you were one of the first leaders in the entrepreneurial influencer space who I saw was unabashed about commingling like this platter (laughs) of, yes, let's talk about sustainable fashion and really cool home decor from these awesome artists and mental health advocacy all in the same smorgasbord Mm -hmm. (laughs) right there. And you did it beautifully. It just, it felt so natural. It it did. Well, I think what struck me though is like, wow, this person isn't doing it for any other agenda other than this is so important to you. It's your truth. And I was like, okay, I, I wanted to meet you. That's what I think. Thank you. <laughs> I'd love for you to walk us through your decision to speak so boldly about your mental health journey and work in the same spaces. Mm-hmm. I think probably having a parent who is a spiritual leader, a, a priest, and also a counselor, observing him speak. I know I'm not religious, but there are great things I learned within the upbringing that I have and some not so great things. Yeah, observing my dad speak every week, observing how he spoke, not only about a scriptural thing, but also setting it in history, bringing it back to his own lived experiences, connecting it with stories of people within the community. I think I've just always had an awareness and an openness and, and I don't know, uh, an awareness of how it's important how you tell a story Mm. and maybe not, I don't know, maybe even unawareness about just how I speak, how I talk. (laughs) I spent a lot of, a lot of my childhood was like late at night, just talking with my dad for hours about philosophical things. So for you speaking about this just felt natural. Did you get, did you get any pushback from folks and whether who were following you or folks who were investing in you? Like, like, oop, we don't mix this with business. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, yeah. I've had before. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get into it. Um, before I had my own store, I had a little Etsy shop, and I also was doing blog design and illustration and some web design. When I had a boss for blog design, you know, she would tell me it's not good for our business if you talk about your mental health. It's not good for our business if you talk about So let me be clear, the people that were hiring you to do work for them wanted you to not talk about your story because they felt like it impacted their business. Am I hearing that correctly? And then within my own business as well, my business partners, I had plenty of times when my business partners would take me aside and sit me down and tell me off and tell me how it was bad for business for me to talk about mental health. It was, it would be bad I'm going to lose the potential of investors if I talk about um, mental health challenges. I can probably say the word emotional abuse within within that world because when I still listened to my intuition, I just thought, but 
you guys deal with mental health challenges. Everyone deals with mental health challenges. No one is perfect. Everyone needs to be reminded to invest in their mental health as much as they are spending on clothes and shoes and whatever stuff. It just, though I am someone who's very, you know, kind of, I appear woo-woo, it's all grounded in logic for me. I am only poetic because sometimes speaking it in a poetic way makes more sense to me than trying to translate something that is logical. So yeah, though I've had lots of people tell me, no, you shouldn't, no, you shouldn't talk about this. 2012, 2010, 2013, especially during those years, I always you know, I self-shamed and was like, why can I not stop talking about these things? Well, because I feel alone and I assume that all of us feel alone. So I will speak. The common humanity. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I think you really started this conversation. Now it's super like, like now everyone's sharing all the things. Yeah. It's trending almost dangerous, I think. um, Yeah. Because. It's, it's, It's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky because when, when I have. In the past, when I got critiques about how I spoke about mental health and mental illness, maybe in 2011, it then made me think, okay, if people are going to, now I understand the word projection. (laughs) There's lots of things. (laughs) You are calling me volatile because you feel emotionally volatile because you don't talk about or don't face your your inner pains, whereas I'm actually very rationally talking about these things in a calm and concise way, I realized if I, whatever I'm telling a story about in my mental health journey, there must be a conclusion. There must be a takeaway. There must be some sort of resolve because it's just venting if you are just barfing out your emotions and then not offering offering any resources at the end. It's not, this is the most important thing is like, I am so open. I am, can be very vulnerable publicly, but it's not out of a space of me impulsively sharing these things and seeking someone to save me. Not at all. It's, I can only share these things because I have already saved myself and I have already found through them. Yeah. I've already found my resolve. And I think that is kind of that is the challenge of today is everybody feels so good that everybody feels like there's space for them to open up about their struggles and what is its purpose? What story are you telling? Are you telling the story because you are screaming for help or are you telling the story because you have seen that you need some help? You have sought the help, whether it's within or outside of yourself and you have found some sort of message to bring and to conclude because of that. So, so since last year, 2020, the, this conversation on mental health now is even seeping its way into corporate spaces, social, emotional learning in the schools is the buzzword. Now I'm curious what you would say to those who run small, medium, large businesses and different levels of leadership. What would you say to these leaders that are still like, okay, I know this is good, but I'm kind of scared. If we talk about it, we're going to make it worse or be so many people are going to just rush us with all these problems. No one will get any work done. What would you Mm. say to those objections to bringing more mental health awareness (sighs) to the workspace? Yeah, I would, (laughs) this is why I write exactly the journals that I write. Um, 
we are scared about controlling what's outside of us when we don't have control of what's within us. So oh my there, <laughs> yes, you know? I'm cheering right now. You can't see me, but like I'm pumping the air. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is, and that's how we get into spaces of projecting onto other people or trying to solve problems before the problem even arises is because we feel the problem within ourselves and we're scared to address it. We're scared to look at it because what happens if we address our own problems? I don't know. So let me try and manage everybody else and manage every other situation. So for those leaders, I would say, okay, you call yourself a leader. So do your own damn work first. Harsh, maybe, but you're a leader. So you know how to be harsh towards others too, to try and further some growth. So be, be the leader to yourself first, be your best friend, address your own mental health issues, name them, put them on paper and recognize that, yeah, it's going to be weird. It's just going to be messy. Like the era that we are in right now is a mess. It is a huge, huge mess that I expect to go on for another four to five years because we are in this weird culture of people trying to overhaul systems that some of them can't be overhauled. They must be burned to the ground to start again. And the same, scary. it's so scary. And that is what I've already experienced within myself as well. This feels like my weird, a very weird, very annoying, maybe little talent and skill is I rec- I feel things in society that are happening. And then I recognize, oh no, I have to do that for myself. I have to address that for myself. But we're in a time of really needing to figure out what bravery is not just as companies, but as individuals. Because if you don't figure out what your mission of brave is, then managing the shit that's going to happen, what that just comes when you're doing big, scary things, it's a lot easier when you figured out your, your brave and your business is brave. No question. You know? Well, because then you have, if you have a, if you, have aware of your stuff, you're not afraid of it, then you're not afraid of others. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Like, and the ish. Yeah. The ish that comes up. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I want to shift gears because you touched on this and this is something that's personal to me too. Uh, you recently you mentioned you recently were formally diagnosed on the autism spectrum. I'm curious what led you to pursue getting diagnosed on the autism spectrum and how has that information impacted not only your relationship with yourself, but your work and how you okay. work? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it has, it, this is a lifelong thing. Like from a young age, I was like, I'm different. And I'm not saying that to, to try and feel special. I just feel a little bit different, a little bit odd, a little bit strange. And people are pointing out to me my entire life. You're weird. You're that weird girl. You're that artsy girl with big boobs. You're that strange girl with big boobs, like these qualifiers that people apply to it each other strange and your anatomy were always put together yeah oh yeah like here's your body oh. we see your body and you're weird so oh, it's geez. like oh so this the, the body is good but the brain is strange and I've always thought well, screw you I love my weird brain and my body is just a body and it will morph and change over time so you don't get my body until you get my brain 
that has been my attitude in dating. That has been my attitude also in uncomfortable friendships and relationships. I just think that I have the the annoying thing about being neurodivergent, the annoying thing about being autistic is that you are hyper aware of things that nobody else is aware of. It is so annoying. I would and beautiful, yes, when it's respected. Autistic people, it's like we have an ability to just kind of like sense, sense things that are happening. When I meet people, I always meet the child inside of a person before I meet the outer shell that society has said, this is how you present yourself, blah, 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 blah. I don't care about that shell and I never have. I care about the, the person inside and the selves that you have been and I want to hold space for them. I think that's a strangely autistic thing and I didn't know that was a thing that connected to autism for me. I just thought, she's weird. She's woo-woo. So I had been, I had started going to therapy in my mid-20s. And I recently graduated, which is so strange. But, you know, I'm sure I will revisit again. But I had been going to therapy for every week for five years with the same therapist. The same sort of things kept coming up of, I don't feel like I have space to exist. I People don't get me. I understand people really well, but then they're freaked out by how well I know them and understand them and see them. My intuition is crazy strong, and yet my cognitive abilities are low. My therapist, you know, she wasn't trained in diagnosing autism. And the the current system for diagnosing autism is specifically catered to little white boys who do not speak. And there are so many more people than that. So many. So many more people. So, yeah, there's this idea on TV of what an autistic person is, and it's always a little white nonverbal boy. So, of course, I didn't think that I was autistic most of my life. I just thought that I was wrong, strange, weird, didn't make sense, couldn't adjust to what society's expectations are of me, couldn't force myself to play a role that I didn't care about. In high school, I would come home and just cry to my parents and be like, I can't not be myself. I don't understand how all these other kids can get the same haircut, wear the same t-shirt, do the same thing, have the same hobbies, like the same music as each other. Like, I can't do that because it's just, I'm ridiculously sincere. And that can be, existing that way can be jarring for people when they meet someone who just is sincere. Jarring because we're not used to authenticity, like re- yeah. right away. And I mean, you're a truth teller and yeah. being a truth teller is, is like, we say we want the truth, but then we're like, no, no, we don't. Never mind. no, 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 <laughs> wait, wait, not that truth. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you something is on, on a personal note, my daughter was diagnosed on the autism mm-hmm. spectrum when she was three, she had an incredible, a bunch of people around her that just got her. And mm. I, I, we, I'm just so grateful. And so we had a lot of early intervention for her. And I knew that if she could communicate uh, with words, whether it's written or spoken or both, that, you know, she could do anything. And so that was such a big focus to get that support. But she's 13 now. <laughs> it's like 13, just oh, a beast, no matter it's what. So hard. And she's, it's so hard. She's working through a lot of emotions, especially 
you know, through owning her story and her mm-hmm. unique nervous system mm-hmm. as she grows up in a world that's geared towards those who are neurotypical. Yeah. You know, it's hard to feel, it's hard to feel different, mm-hmm. but especially at 13. Yeah. And lately she's been saying, mom, why did you get me diagnosed? Why did you want to? And why did you tell me mm. that I, and, and I wish you, I wish you wouldn't have told me. Oh, I and to you know, her. <laughs> I'm curious what you would say to my daughter, knowing what you know now about your own nervous system and seeing the impact of not knowing you were on the autism spectrum growing up. It's very hard being so aware of yourself. Mm. It's really hard actually having the answers. That's something that she's probably dealing with that is different than her peers without names for whatever their struggles are is they can all commiserate in this, I don't know, sort of state, whereas it's really hard owning what you lack or owning a struggle. But at the same time, I know for myself what I lack, I also have skills and talents that are kind of beyond a lot of my peers. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to be beyond a lot of my peers. I want to be equal. That's, I think the pain, the pain point is I didn't ask to be really talented in this way and severely suffering in my ability to remember things or to comprehend. I can comprehend things in this kind of weird poetic way. But if you say something, for example, if someone says a joke to me that sounds like there's truth in it, I get really confused and I don't take it as a joke. The way that autistic brains interpret things is just slightly different and it just sucks sometimes. But you're, I think you're right though, that awareness, even going back to what we were talking about earlier with leaders, that awareness is, can be exquisitely hard. It can yeah. be a, ten, a tender space. And especially when you're 13, trying to figure out who you are or 13, 30, 60, whatever yeah. in a world that's always assessing, but there's still this stigma and misunderstanding around autism. So I think that I think that's the, the the scary thing about autism. People are afraid to be diagnosed as autistic because they think of I mean, I think of the kids who were bullied in my high school, the kids who were autistic, I loved them. The kids who I knew were autistic, I just was so excited to listen to them tell me about that one thing that they're so hyped about. Yeah, tell me about giraffes for an hour go for it. Like you are in the zone. <laughs> I felt so accepted by autistic kids. I felt so understood. I felt like I want to hold space for them, but I also saw how they were treated. I now also look at the ways that I was bullied and I, uh, it was a different type of bullying because I didn't have a name for my weirdness. I think people are afraid of having a name to something that they know will make them marginalized. Like if you if you take it back to that the awareness thing, like racism in America. <laughs> there are peop the people who are very obviously blatantly racist, it's usually because they are unwilling to have an awareness of someone else's life experience. And yeah, when you finally seek to and continually seek to educate yourself on someone else's life experiences, it means you have to be more responsible with yourself and how you treat others. Like I think our community is very much aware, 
But when I see inclusion as someone who will sit and listen to her talk about Jim Morrison and 1970s Sting, because she won't Aww. listen to the new stuff, but like a 1970s Sting is where her heart lies right now. And she's probably gonna be mortified that I shared this here. She's like, no, Mom. <laughs> I also am the seventies are a thing for me. So okay. she and I can chat. We can we can banter about it. It'll be really fun. <laughs> but like her friends are like, what? And and even so she's you know seeking out teachers, but they're busy. And she's okay. like, Mom, I'm just so lonely, you know, because she's up. So yeah. it's just working through that. But the good news is is she's talking about it. That's my that's kind of my cue. As long as she's talking about her struggles. Yeah. I know that's that's the juicy one, a juicy space and the healthy space for her. So thank you yeah. for sharing a bit about that. I want to shift a little bit about something else I saw in prepping for this interview. <laughs> Someone referred to you as an accidental influencer with little quotes, an accidental. Yeah. You know, and, you, and you do have a lot of impact. And I, I just am grateful of how you talk about what you talk about and and the commitment to that. But I'm curious, what does that term mean to you? And what values guide your work as someone who has influence over a community that has faithfully followed you for years? Yeah, I am very grateful. Yeah, I would definitely say I'm an accidental influencer because probably of autism. I really think it's because of <laughs> being an autistic person, things I won't shut up about that. Mm. And I just must, I must keep going because I feel and I sense I get and that. I know it needs to be spoken. So I've had people tell me before the autism diagnosis, like you're very divisive. And I'm like, I'm not, I do not seek to be divisive. I'm just saying things that I know in two years you will accept and society will accept. But right now I'm just saying it because no one else is talking. I'm not doing it to mm. be divisive. I'm just saying like when I think about my business, when I, yeah, launching my online site, it was, I, <laughs> I saw things in society that I'm like, this is stupid. Why are we not changing things? I saw how all models, basically until last year, we prioritized skinny white girls. So I made sure there was diversity in my first photo shoot in 2015. Not as, you know, I think that I can also, I could also come off as like a savior or have a savior mm. mentality. But Truly what it is, is just, I see, it's just practical to me. I'm like, this is stupid. Why are we doing that? Do something different. It's not, I'm not trying to save the world. I am not trying to be divisive. I'm just pointing out things and then executing. That's it. And I think that's probably a very, I think probably a lot of leaders are on the spectrum because of that thing in them. Like Elon Musk is also autistic. Do I agree with a lot of things that he's done? No, I don't. But he has that thing in him that's like, I see it, I must do it. I see it, let's try it. There's potential there, there's a vision, he just goes. And I'm similar in that quality of being. So it's like, I'm not, I never sought out to be an influencer, but I did from a young age feel inside of me like, oh, I just kind of am a leader. Even when I don't want to be, I can be a lead. I am a leader or fall into that leader position because I sense things around me that need to be shifted. If I'm, I was going to say, frankly, we need more reluctant leaders. We need more leaders who aren't looking for just the spotlight. We need folks that are just going to get shit done. And yeah. I'm going to lead with integrity and commitment. It's yeah. so funny. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like my, my daughter is like a gourmet chef, like literally gourmet That's chef. So and cool. so she, 
she reads cookbooks every night wow. and magazines, and then she won't look at a recipe. She's so stubborn. She won't look oh. at a recipe, but then she'll make it from her mind. She has to get the, the recipe out of her head. And mm-hmm. so until she cooks it, we let's just say we've our she grocery bill to. is pretty <laughs> Yeah, she has to she, do it. But she has to get it out. And and I do see that with a lot of leaders when there's just something they have to download and create whatever that is, however that is, whatever their thing is. I really appreciate that. We call that driven or maybe we call it obsessed. We maybe we criticize it, maybe we kind of look at it and go, That's that's them, not me. Yeah. People will tell me like, Oh, you're really neurotic. I'm like, No, I'm just optimistic and I'm just getting the thing done so I can get over it and move on to the next thing. Like that's not neurotic. That's just it me. It just is me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm also at 35, I can accept and know like, nah, you're not, you're never going to fit in. And, but you are going to fit in with just the right people who like you in your uniqueness and you're going to love them in their uniqueness. And you got to belong here. You got to belong yeah. to you. I mean, that's I, why I, I, I was out there after closing my business and going through a pandemic and crying a lot and ending a marriage. Oh. And I had to do all of the things that society said were what make you successful and give you purpose. And then I had to tear them all down to then say, Oh yeah, none of that matters. It's, me liking myself, me being my best friend, me greeting the child inside and saying, you're welcome here and you can stay here with me. That is, that's the good stuff. But that also getting to that headspace when you're so used to being driven by anxiety and self-shame and self-criticism and other people trying to box you in and rebelling against that your whole life. Now that I'm in this beautifully grounded space, I'm like, ah, who cares? Like there's so much I just don't care about now, which is, so what do I do next? Hmm. (laughs) It's a wild thing to, to be in that space of acceptance. There aren't many leaders who talk about actually being there. Mm -mm. It's always a destination, always going. Yeah. That's a really good point. I can't end this interview without talking about your books. You are now the author of multiple books based on the concept of 52 lists. How did your passion for making lists turn into a multiple book deal that cultivated repeat bestsellers? Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, it started with, I have a need. I recognize there's a need in me. I have so many thoughts going at all the same time. How do I distill those thoughts down so I can actually see what I'm truly thinking about and contemplating and then can analyze those thoughts and move forward and on from these thoughts. So I started writing 52 lists, a guided list making project on my blog in 2013. Again, before talking about mental health was okay. And it just kind of took off a lot of people. I could see journaling is a powerful tool And it's also not cool. (laughs) So I tried to just make something that would be easy and helpful for overthinkers like me to just get their thoughts onto a page so they could see them and use them. And then for people who have a very, I would say most neurotypical people are very avoidant of addressing their inner thoughts, avoidant of addressing their inner feelings, because they just want to stay in the box and do the box things. The lists help those people get some things onto a page and make it very practical so it's not so emotionally charged. 
just get some thoughts onto a page, list what you're grateful for. And then mm-hmm. from there, I at the end of every list, there's a question or a prompt for you to take what you've written and integrate it into your life some way. So if it's list what you're grateful for, it would be, you know, how do you then take a moment each day this week to really meditate on your gratefulness for that one thing? And how does it change your attitude? How does it change how you treat others? How does it change how you treat yourself? And there's bigger questions like list the hardest things from your past that have shaped you for the better. Through all of the lists, I really just try to help people reframe their personal narratives. This is emotional development. This is, (laughs) we are all building our own story. And I really care about people getting access to trusting themselves, to listening to themselves, to feeling self and taking time with themselves is my joy. This is my life's purpose. This is, you know, my, my autistic, exciting thing that I love to obsess over. And people tell me all the time, like, Maria, you know yourself so well. And then they start self-shaming about it. And I'm like, no, I just, I wrote these things that are very simple that you too can get to this headspace. If you just write some lists, it's very simple. It's intimidating at first, but when you get into it, you will start to see how wise you are within the pages. And that that's also an important element to me of my work is I'm not, I don't want to, yeah, sure, in this space, I'm going to blah, 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 tell you my thoughts. But within my books and my journals, I want you to talk to you. I want you to realize that you have so many chunks of wisdoms waiting inside of you to uncover if you just take the time to be curious about you. Not you're allowed to be fearful at the same time as curious. It's not it's not you have to be in this total space of self-acceptance to start. No, no, no. You're going to be freaked out to see what you find. You're going to be scared and you can be curious because some beautiful things are going to pop up within your own mind, alongside those little things you're afraid of addressing and seeing. And those beautiful things will become louder. Beautiful. What are you working on right now? Right now, I am kind of, I'm taking a lot of pivots. So I just wrote uh, my 52 list project, which is a journal for kids that just came out in September. And it's geared at eight to 12. But you can be older or younger, because I noticed that when I look at the education system, you know, I think people really need to consider this, like you are challenged every day when you go to school to learn intellectually, and it's uncomfortable, and it's scary, and it's confusing, and you can feel stupid, but you're still learning. Why are we not offering the same sort of educational tools for emotion? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is what I'm trying to do with the my 52 list project for kids, is to help kids from a young age while their minds are still mushy, process the things that are happening in them and around them so that they can then become grown-ups who don't have to deal with as much crap that we deal with. Because a lot of us grown-ups are realizing, oh, I didn't address that from my childhood. I didn't figure that mm-hmm. out. Like, this is where your daughter is going to be so powerful as a grown-up is, ew, she has to address all of these hard things right where she's at right now. And a lot of other kids aren't doing that, but whoa, she's going to be such an emotionally intelligent person when she's older because of that. And she will 
she will be in a place like me where she feels relief in recognizing, oh my gosh, yeah, I already addressed all that stuff. I already have the tools for that stuff. I already built all my tools. I have my tool set. That is the goal with my 52 list project is to help help kids really harness their own power from a young age and trust and know they've got themselves so that there's a little less work when you're older, like we've had to do in unpacking. Thank you for those words. Yes. It's a lot of work, but it's important work. And I, I, I do think the sooner we do it, the better. I've seen that in, in my own personal life and in my professional work too. Maria, this has been a joy today. Thank Aww, you, you so Thank much you. for your time, sharing your heart and your life. And I'm really looking forward to more people getting to know you and having access to your story and your wisdom. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much. It was so lovely. What drives your dreams is often influenced by the echoes of your pain. Now it's important to not underestimate the impact the burdens of your story can have on the incredible things that you're striving for and working towards. Getting clear on your values, the meaning and motivation behind your passions requires some inner work. Now, it may feel tedious and even inefficient to keep checking in on these inner influences, but I promise you it's actually a powerful practice so you can recalibrate and reassess what you're working towards with your life and work. And then sometimes the lessons <laughs> and learning just come with arriving and receiving the unexpected learnings and disappointments that achieving the dream you've been working towards is not as fulfilling or aligned as you hoped. I know that was the case for me, and it was also the experience for Maria. Maria shared with us some deep wisdom when she saw how achieving her dream brought with it unexpected learnings that led to the beginning of major shifts in her work, relationships with others, and herself. So let me ask you, are you clear on what's driving your dreams? What support do you need to help you get clear on any burdens that may be fueling your dreams in an unhealthy way? And what have you learned from arriving at some hard-earned dreams that felt disappointing or wanting? Maria did not let the realization her dreams, her work in life that did not truly fulfill her, take her out. Instead, she stepped into courage and curiosity and began the work to heal and deconstruct, modeling beautifully the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and your action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, 
when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the weekly Unburdened Leader email, find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 